All right, so we're looking at Genesis chapter 44 today, and I'd like you to find that. It's on uh, page 38, if you're looking in one of the Blackview Bibles. We're working still through the, the last few chapters of Genesis. Uh, we're going to be done about the time that, that school gets out. We're in the story of Joseph. And I'm not going to recap the whole story today, but just remember Joseph is part of a large family. Jacob, who's later named Israel, is his dad. He's got all kinds of sons and eventually a whole bunch of daughters, all from four different women. It's a crazy messed up family. Joseph's life is a roller coaster. Starts high, he goes down, he goes back up, he goes down, he goes comes back up. And uh, at the point that we enter the story today, Joseph, who was sold as a slave by his brothers at the age of 17, is now 32 and the second most powerful man in the whole world. He is the governor of Egypt, the superpower at the time, only below Pharaoh himself. God raised him up in this miraculous way where Pharaoh had these two dreams and didn't know what to make of it. God sent Joseph in order to interpret these dreams in which God warned Pharaoh that there would be seven years of great plenty, bumper crops. So store it up because after that there are seven years of no harvest, no planting, just famine. Where we are in our story today is two years into that second seven years. Joseph's family, his brothers, came to Egypt, met with Joseph, didn't recognize him. Joseph uh, treated him roughly, spoke to them roughly, tested him in ways, put him in prison for three days, let him all out except for Simeon, who he kept, and he sent them back to their family with a whole bunch of food and put all their money back in their sacks too. When they got back to Jacob... They discovered that all the money was there. They panicked. They thought, now we're going to be considered thieves. We can't go back to Egypt. But eventually, the money ran out, and they had to go back. But there was a condition. Joseph had said, you will not see my face again unless you bring with you your youngest brother, Benjamin, the full-blood brother of Joseph. And so we looked at last week this terrible decision where Jacob, the the dad, has to part with his beloved youngest son, fully believing that the the chances are he's not going to come back alive. They travel back to Egypt in order to buy more food, and they find out that this governor, uh, he's got more testing in store for them. More challenge, more in-your-face conversation and action. The most important thing that we saw last week was the point where Judah, fourth-born son, offers himself as a ransom to guarantee that Benjamin gets to come home. So I just want to read this to you. This was our main thing last week. Judah offers himself in exchange for Benjamin... His life is the ransom that will be paid if he cannot return Benjamin safe and sound. 2,000 years later, Jesus Christ, a descendant of Judah, himself known as the Lion of the tribe of Judah, would give his life as a ransom for the sins of God's beloved children in order to guarantee their safe journey home to our Heavenly Father. Today we're going to see how that that promise plays out in real life. 
where Judah is forced to decide, am I going to do this, or were they just empty words? Genesis 44, 1 through 34. Then he, that's Joseph, commanded the steward of his house, fill the men's sacks with food as much as they can carry, put each man's money in the mouth of his sack, so this is just like last time, they're secretly putting the money back, and put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest, that's Benjamin, with his money for the grain. He did as Joseph told him. So Joseph is going to test them again, just like last time when they had, to, they had to come back. and said, we don't understand what happened, but all that money got back in our sacks. We're not thieves, we promise. Joseph's setting them up again, testing them again. But this time he ups the stakes. He takes this special silver cup and he puts it in Benjamin's sack because he is laying a trap for his brothers. Verse 3, as soon as the morning was light, the men were sent away with their donkeys. They had gone only a short distance from the city. Now Joseph said to his steward, up, follow after the men. When you overtake them, say to them, why have you repaid evil for good? Is it not from this, meaning the cup, that my Lord drinks, and by this that he practices divination? You have done evil in doing this. You have to ask, what's going on here? The wording is a little vague. It gets filled in for us later. But basically, they're setting it up so the steward catches up to the guys and accuses them of treachery. He said, look, we we gave you your money, or well, God gave you your money back the first time. That was the explanation. You came back, you bought more stuff, and then you somehow you got your money back again, and you've stolen this cup from us. You have repaid our generosity with evil. That's the accusation that's going to be made here. And the interesting little thing in there is that this cup is referred to as a cup that Joseph uses for divination. We have to wonder what divination is. Well, divination is the practice of seeking knowledge of the future or unknown knowledge by supernatural means. So it would be what we would call magic, fortune-telling, Uh, Anything that you try to get secret knowledge from divine beings, whether that would be angels or from from gods or goddesses or anything like that you might want to imagine. A diviner is someone who practices divination. Anybody know what a divining rod is? Divining rod? Anybody? Got an example here. You guys probably played with one of these as a kid, right? Find the water. Do this. Walk around. Close your eyes. Tell your little brother, dig here. Right? This is considered a divining rod. Now, interestingly, um, there, there is no scientific reason to think that holding a stick in front of you can help you find water. Right? But people for generations, hundreds of years, have done this. And in the UK, there are 12 major municipal water plants or uh, companies. Ten of those 12 have admitted to keeping a divining rod in their trucks to use to search for water leaks. Isn't that crazy? Ten out of the 12 think that this might work. I can tell you that if it works, uh, it is a complete coincidence or there's some kind of darkness that's making that work. God has strong words 
for us when it comes to this idea of divination. He condemns it entirely. So, horoscopes, tarot cards, Ouija boards, seances, zodiac, God forbids all of that. In Deuteronomy, he says this. He says, the people of Israel, they're about to come into the promised land after the Exodus. He says this. When you come into the land that the Lord your God has given you, you shall not learn to follow the abominable practices of those nations. And we would ask, okay, what are those bad practices that they're not supposed to learn? There shall not be found among you anyone who burns his son or his daughter as an offering. He actually had to tell the Israelites not to burn their sons and daughters in a sacrificial offering. Yes, they did. Because that was common for the Canaanite people in the land that they were going to inhabit. They had this particular false god named Molech. And part of, part of the worship of Molech was you'd get this big bronze statue. I'll show the next picture here. Big bronze statue. Um, well, that was the second one there. And uh, you'd build this big fire in it. And then you would take a live baby and offer it above the fire to this false god, Molech. And God says to the people, don't be like that. Now, when I went looking for images of Molech, there was images like the second one here, a little bit of uh, commentary on the world that we live in, where Molech is labeled as Planned Parenthood, the largest abortion provider in the United States. But this was something that they actually warned them about, that God warned them about. Now, as serious as that is, like, I assume that none of you have ever attempted to burn your child as a sacrifice to a pagan god. But the rest of the list gets a little more down to earth for us. He continues, anyone who practices divination or tells fortunes or interprets omens or a sorcerer or a charmer or a medium, trying to speak with a spiritual being, or a necromancer, or one who inquires of the dead. For whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord. God takes this very seriously. And so, Christian, if you are participating in any of this, if you're you know, seeing, seeing what your horoscope says, or you're you know, going to a palm reader, or you're, anything like that, then repent. Change. Walk away from that. The, God clearly says you are to have nothing to do with it. This cup is being labeled as the tool that Joseph, our hero, Joseph uses for divination. What is going? Is he actually doing these kind of things to use a cup for divination? He'd pour wine in it and he'd swirl it and he'd look at the patterns and the shapes and try to divine what the future is. Is Joseph doing that? Well, the way it's worded for us in this chapter intentionally leaves open the idea that this is all simply a ruse. If we look at the character of Joseph, the way that he has remained faithful to God, even as a slave in a pagan land, this would be very out of character if he's actually doing this divination stuff. But the way that things are worded leads us to believe that he is setting them up to try to get more information from them. So verse 6, when he that is the steward, the manager of Joseph's house, isn't it amazing that he has a manager over his house? from slave to somebody who has to employ somebody to manage his household. When he overtook them, he spoke to them these words that we just read before. 
They said to him, Why does my Lord speak such words as these? Far be it from your servants to do such a thing. Behold, the money that we found in the mouths of our sacks we brought back to you from the land of Canaan. How then could we steal silver or gold from my Lord's house? So, look, we were honest before. Why would we try to steal now? That's what they're saying. Verse 9, Whichever of your servants is found with it shall die, and we also will be my Lord's servants. So they're so confident in their innocence that they make this rash oath. If you find this cup in any of our luggage, the person who has it will die. That's how confident they are. The rest of us will be your slaves. He, the servant, said, let it be as you say, and then he alters it, he softens it. He who is found with it, the cup, shall be my servant, and the rest of you shall be innocent. Which is a pretty good deal considering what they proposed. Verse 11. Then each man quickly lowered his sack to the ground, and each man opened his sack, and he searched, beginning with the eldest and ending with the youngest, and the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. Then they tore their clothes, and every man loaded his donkey, and they returned to the city. And I can imagine how this scene plays out. Reuben, the firstborn, gets down, opens his sack, sees the money in there, and the pride, the surety that he felt a moment ago evaporates. Because he wasn't expecting to find anything out of place in there. And if the money's back in there, maybe the cup is somewhere else. When this happened the first time, do you remember the brothers interpreted the fact that the money was back as though God was doing that? Not for them, but to them. They interpreted it as a curse. What does Reuben think now as he looks into his sack, sees the money is back, and starts to wonder what will happen? And so fear rises in him. And the, the next one, Simeon looks, and there's money in that sack. Levi and Judah and all down the line, but by the time they get to like 9, 10, or so, they're, they're starting to feel pretty confident again. And they're looking at the steward saying, we told you. We don't know where the money came from, but we told you. We didn't take the cup. And then Benjamin opens the sack, and he raises the silver cup, and their world falls apart, especially Judah. Judah is stuck because he has promised that he will bring Benjamin home safely to dad or he will die trying and now Benjamin is under a death curse they've just said look whoever has the cup will die imagine the conversations on the way back to Joseph's house so they whisper heatedly with each other trying to figure out how this happened what are they going to do what kind of plan are they going to come up with and poor Judah what a weight must have been on his shoulders as they ride back. Today we would call it a cross to bear. Verse 14. When Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, he was still there. They fell before him to the ground. And Joseph said to them, What deed is this that you have done? Do you not know that a man like me can indeed practice divination? There it is again. But notice what he says. A man like me. A man in my position as a leader in Egypt. He doesn't say that he does. This is all part of the ruse. He's, he's fooling them. He's 
trying to get more information out of me. He says, if I can practice these spiritual secret arts and I can figure out that one of you stole the cup and send my steward after you, then I can find out the other secrets. And so you might as well tell me what those secrets are right now. That's what he's doing. Verse 16. Judah said, what shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? How can we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants. Behold, we are my Lord's servants, both we and he also, in whose hand the cup has been found. So Judah, though he's not the firstborn, he's fourth, he takes the responsibility, he does the speaking because the weight is on him, because of the promise that he made. And look what he says. He says, our guilt has been found out. Now, they know they're innocent of this. So how can he say their guilt has been found out? Well, Judah's looking back 20 years to their real guilt when it was Judah's idea to sell Joseph into slavery. That guilt has been looming over them all these years. And just like the last time when they were before Joseph, they interpreted the hardship that they were going through as a result of the guilt from their time of mistreating Joseph. They interpret that again now. Somehow, God is getting revenge on us because of our guilt from 20 years ago. Have you ever felt that? Have you ever thought that? These things are happening to me right now because of the sins that I committed in my past. This is the punishment that I have brought on myself. Amazingly, if you are in Christ, there is no wrath to be poured on you. That the perfect, holy, pure, all-powerful God of the universe, the one that we have sinned against in so many ways, has no wrath to pour on you if you are in Christ because he has poured that wrath, that punishment out on his son in your place. It would be unjust for him to punish you if he has punished his son also. Romans 8.1 says this. Man, there's some of you that I, you just, you gotta hear this verse. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation if you're in Christ Jesus. Now let that sink in. Those things that are running through your head, that list of stuff that you've done in the past that you've never admitted to anybody, the thoughts, the, the actions, the intents of your heart, all of that stuff that's just, it's just so ugly. If you are in Christ, there's no condemnation. Now, if you're outside of Christ, there is still condemnation. But for those who are in Christ, who have been born again in Christ, there is no condemnation. Now, God does not pour out his wrath on you as a child of God. But he does discipline you. He does correct you. And he does, the way our language breaks down, he does, he does punish us. Not with the, the wrath and the permanence that we deserve, but he he sometimes punishes us in a disciplinary way. Parents, you know how this works. You love your children, 
But sometimes you have, sometimes very often, you have to correct your child. You have to discipline your child. You have to punish your child. Not out of wrath, hopefully, although sometimes, but out of love for this child. Because you want this child to grow and mature, to become a healthy, mature adult. It's the same with us. God, our Heavenly Father, no longer pours His wrath on us as children of God, but He does discipline us. And interestingly, that discipline is a sign of His love for us. We see this in Hebrews 12. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by Him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and he chastises every son whom he receives. And so these, these short verses here are telling us, look, if you are a child of God, you should expect discipline, loving discipline from a heavenly father, and that that discipline is, in fact, the proof of his love for you. If you are a child of God, of course he's going to discipline you. And so don't think lightly of it, the writer of the Hebrews says. Don't think lightly of it, and don't grow weary. Are you right now a child of God in a season of discipline? Is God leaning heavily on you in order to bring you to confession, to repentance, to change? Well, the best thing to do would be to just quickly turn to Him in confession and repentance and change. But if it's been a long season, don't give up. He still loves you. These words to the Hebrews tell us, nor be weary. Don't give up when reproved by. Goes on in verse 7. It is for discipline that you have to endure. It's not wrath, it's discipline. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have been participate, all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. That points us back to this reality that if you are in Christ, the discipline of the Lord is actually a proof of his love for you. Let's go back to Genesis 44. So Judah has just said, we are your servants. Basically, have mercy on us. Verse 17, but he said, that's Joseph, far be it from me that I should do so. That is, take you all as servants. Only the man is in whose hand the cup was found shall be my servant. But as for you, go up in peace to your father. Now, in this short conversation, the, the poetic storyline of the Joseph story comes 360 degrees. It comes all the way around. Because in this conversation, we have Judah, whose idea it was to sell Joseph as a slave now offering himself as a slave to Joseph, still not knowing it's Joseph. Joseph responds with what seems like mercy. No, you guys can all go free, except for Benjamin. Why? Because he wants his beloved, full-blooded brother with him. But we're not done. There's still more to be found out. Verse 18. Then Judah went up to him and said, Oh, my Lord, please let your servant speak a word in my Lord's ears. Let not your anger burn against your servant, for you are like Pharaoh himself. 
My Lord asked his servants, saying, Have you a father or brother? This was back the first time they visited. And we said to my Lord, We have a father, an old man, and a younger brother, the child of his old age. His brother is dead, speaking of Joseph, and he alone is left of his mother's children. And his father loves him. Then you said to your servants, Bring him down to me, that I may set my eyes on him. We said to my Lord, The boy cannot leave his father, for if he should leave his father, his father would die. Then you said to your servants, Unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you shall not see my face again. So Judah reminds Joseph of this conversation, and he words it in such a way as to put the blame on Joseph. This is This mess is your fault, O governor of Egypt, because you asked us these questions last time and you demanded that we bring this boy with us. And we don't understand what's going on here, but this was all your idea. Little does he know it really was all Joseph's brilliant plan. Verse 24. When we went back to your servant, my father, we told him the words of my Lord. And when our father said, go again, buy us a little food, we said, we cannot go down. If our youngest brother goes with us, then we will go down. For we cannot see the man's face unless our younger, youngest brother is with us. Then your servant, my father, said to us, now listen carefully. You know that my wife bore me two sons. Speaking of his favorite wife, Rachel, an old messed up family. You know that my wife bore me two sons. One left me, and I said, surely he has been torn to pieces, and I have never seen him since. If you take this one also from me, and harm happens to him, you will bring down my gray hairs and evil to Sheol, to the underworld. So Joseph has now gotten the information that he was looking for all along. This whole thing of the money and the cup and the the divination claim and all all of this is meant to bring out these secrets and Judah has just volunteered that little bit of information that's going to change the story completely. Joseph learns that Jacob didn't just give up on him, he thinks he's dead. See, when Joseph is sold as a slave... He's gone then for 20 years. He has no contact with his family. And he doesn't know what is told to his dad. Did the boys go home and say, we sold him as a slave, or there was this battle they captured and they took him off as a slave? What kind of story do they make up? But they, they led their dad to believe that Joseph was dead. Killed an animal, put a bunch of blood on Joseph's special coat, said, look, we found the coat. It's all bloody. It's torn to pieces. They didn't actually say, Joseph's dead. But in their trickery and their deception, they led Jacob to believe that Joseph was dead. So Joseph now knows that his dad has been under this deception for 22 years. It's not that his dad has forgotten about him. It's not that his dad has has not wanted to come and rescue him. His dad thought he was dead. And that softens Joseph's heart even more. We've seen Joseph get emotional a couple times already and start crying and have to leave the room. Well, this is more than he can take. Somehow he controls himself to keep going. 
Verse 30, now therefore, as soon as I come to your servant, my father, and the boy is not with us, then as his life is bound up in the boy's life, as soon as he sees that the boy is not with us, he will die, and your servants will bring down the gray hairs of your servant, our father, with sorrow to Sheol. Basically saying, look, governor, if you send us home without young Benjamin, our dad's going to die, and it's your fault. But they don't know that they're talking to Joseph. And Joseph hears The life of my dad rests in this decision that I have the power to make. And then the big surprise, 32. Judah's still speaking. For your servant became a pledge of safety for the boy to my father, saying, if I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. Now, therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord, and let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. Now look at this change in Judah. Joseph remembers being in the pit, hearing the voice of Judah speaking to his brothers saying, look guys, if we kill him, there's no benefit. Let's sell him as a slave and then we at least have some money to party with. Right? That's Judah's idea 22 years ago. Now Judah stands, well, probably kneels before him and pleads with him and says, take me instead. I will be your slave. Let my brother go. He's concerned for. He's going to sacrifice himself for his brother. The same guy who wanted to sell the other brother. But there's been a change in Judah. And then notice the last thing he says there. I fear to see the evil that would find my father. Not, I don't want to get in trouble with dad. But I fear what would happen to my dad if he didn't get Benjamin back. Somehow, God has worked in Judah to transform this man. He's finally behaving like a real man. He's finally offering himself for the benefit of others. Finally, the transformation is happening. Judah is motivated by love for another. He's concerned for the health of another. He is going to give himself for the good of another. And this is, of course, a foreshadowing for us of the gospel of Jesus. It's not a perfect picture, but it is a foreshadowing. Judah offered himself as a substitute for his brother. Jesus offered himself as a substitute for all of us lost sinners in order to make us brothers and sisters in Christ. Judah offered to pay the price for Benjamin's freedom. Jesus paid the price for our ultimate freedom. Judah took upon himself the guilt punishment for what looked to be Benjamin's sin. Jesus took upon himself all of our sin, all the punishment that goes with it. Jesus died. He paid that ultimate price, giving up his life as a ransom, a sacrifice for us. Jesus' death in our place was a literal sacrificing of his life. Judah is offering his life, but he doesn't think it's going to actually cost him his life. He thinks, I'm going to be able to live onward as a slave, but he's not going to kill me. 
which again points us to the New Testament. Because as though Christ has taken and given his very life, dying literally for you, he calls you to give up your life, not as a literal sacrifice to die for your sins, but to give up your life as a living sacrifice, to continue to live just like Judah says he'll continue to live, but to give your life as a sacrifice. We see this clearly in Romans 12, 1 through 2. Apostle Paul says this to us. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers. And the only reason he can say brothers is because Christ died to bring those people into the family of God. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed just as Judah is being transformed. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable, perfect. So if you're here today, and you are in Christ, not only is there the amazing good news that there is no condemnation for you, the wrath of God is not to be poured out on you. There's also this terrifying call, that you are called to offer your life as a living sacrifice back to your Lord. He gave his life to save you. He calls you to offer your life back as a living sacrifice. The decisions you make, the priorities, the, the way that you use his stuff and his money that he's lended you, the way that you treat other people, the goals that you have in life, all of that comes under the lordship of the one who gave his life to save you. You say, I give it back. I give my whole life back to you. I am your servant. We saw in this dialogue with Joseph and, uh, and Judah how Judah says, your servant, like a million times, right? Will you offer yourself as a servant back to your Lord who gave his life for you. Jesus is worthy of such whole life worship. He's worthy of your whole life because he gave his life to give you life so you can give it back to him. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for the sacrificial death of Jesus. Thank you for all the things in the Old Testament, especially in this Joseph story, that give us hints of what is to come, and yet we still couldn't imagine just how good it would be that God would come in the flesh and die in our place so that we could be freed from darkness and sin and death, and we could be made new and adopted into the family of God. We couldn't see it in the Old Testament, Lord, but we can see it clearly looking back in the New Testament. And so, Jesus, we praise you and we worship you for what you've done. We thank you. We declare that, that you are worthy of our whole lives in submission to you. Now, we, we can say that, but boy, it's hard to live that way. We want to take back. We want to regain and, and retain control 
in our lives. We don't want to be your servants most of the time, so we ask that you would transform us, just like you transformed Judah into a man who would offer his life for his brother. Would you transform us into men and women of God who would offer our lives in service to you? In Jesus' name, amen.